You're listening to Drek FM. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. Welcome, everybody, to the 602 Club. So excited to be here tonight. We are just blazing on in, lightning quick. I, one might say uh, this show might go by in the flash. Uh, I'm, I'm so excited. No, we're not here to talk about uh, The Flash from DC Comics. We're actually going to talk about something. We're going to go way back. We're going to go back in the Wayback Machine, kind of like we did a few times last year, and uh, talk about a cult classic. Uh, last year, we dove into Dune. We also talked about The Last Starfighter. And this week, we're going to be hitting up Flash Gordon and uh, got a fantastic guest with me to talk about this and needed somebody who understood it much better than I. The only one, the man, the myth, the legend, John Champion. How are you, Dion? <laughs> Thanks so much, man. Yeah, I'm, you know, you and I talk Bond so yeah. often, and, and it's great to break out of that, talk about something totally different. And you really could not have picked a better one for me. I, I am so excited to talk about this movie. So um, thank you. Thank you so much for having I me on. I love it. No, I, I'm absolutely thrilled to have you because. As has happened before with some of these older movies where this movie came out in 80, I was quite young when that came out. I was one. Uh, so it's something that I have just seen recently. And you are a, you know, a longtime fan of this. So it's, it's great because we have two totally different perspectives. I think that will make for, you know, a, an enjoyable show, hopefully, for everyone um, yeah, want to say a, a quick thanks to everybody who's uh, you know gone over to iTunes and given us a star rating review. Really appreciate that, everyone. It, it means so much that that you're taking the time out in your busy day to, to you know a couple minutes to do that. Really appreciate that. Uh, gotten a few new reviews recently. Uh, last time mentioned them on the show. Follow their example. Hit us up with that on iTunes, and and you'll get uh, called out here in the show and thanked profusely so you can also find all of our shows on itunes at itunes.com slash trek fm trek fm is a feature provider so all the podcasts we have there you can find you can also find us on facebook facebook.com slash trek fm we're on twitter trek fm and we have the listeners only discussion group which is on facebook and you can find that by going to the website at trek.fm and clicking discussion on any of the menu bars there or you can just go to Facebook and type Fable into the search field and you'll be able to converse with all the fans, talk about the shows. There's so much going on there, so I hope you will check it out. Um, whew, now, John, uh, this is an interesting movie <laughs> and, and I wanted to kind of just start with the history because I'm sure that, like me, there's probably a lot of fans. When you say Flash Gordon, you kind of have uh, 1930s black and white serials running around your head. But, um, you know, one of the things that, is most interesting for me is that they wrote the comic strip originally as a way to siphon off some of the popularity of Buck Rogers and that yeah. this was meant as competition basically. Right. Yeah. Buck Rogers premiered in 1928. Um, and then just a few years later you have Flash Gordon and, you know, really Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon, but, but obviously the the edge to Buck Rogers there, that's sort of the creation of the modern sci-fi hero character. Everything that comes after it, um, Forbidden Planet, Star Trek, Star Wars, all of that stuff is a nod back to those characters from the late 20s and early 30s. Well, and it, it's interesting too because, you know, the strip starts in 1934, and then almost immediately, the first serials come out in 1936, which is fantastic. In fact, if you're like me and you want to do some research, which I did, I had a blast actually watching a bunch of these serials on YouTube. You can find them. People have them collected, like all 88 of the original serials. 
They're about 20 minutes long each. And honestly, I have to say I was completely shocked by how fun they are. They're obviously uh, got a ton of cheese to them. But some of the effects actually really hold up, which was so surprising. Like when they film iguanas on a soundstage (laughs) and then they have that blown up, it actually works pretty well. Yeah, it's it's not bad. Um, you know, obviously the expectation of an audience in the early 1930s when it comes to science fiction is going to be way different from the expectation of an audience now or in 1980 um, watching this kind of thing. Uh, by the way, I would encourage you to also check out a uh, an early serial it, it was actually the very first buck rogers committed to film and it was made for the 1933 world's fair in chicago so it even predates awesome. wow. what yeah the buster crab serials that he did uh, well buster crab played buck rogers and he played flash gordon well in an attempt to sell toys at the 1933 World's Fair, there is this very homemade awesome. little episode of Buck Rogers, <laughs> and it is hilariously miserable. <laughs> it's really awful, it, but you can't help but love it because it's so bad. Well, I mean, and, and that's what's so great about uh, the this old serial, if you're watching it, because there's some of it that's just actually you're surprised that it actually still holds up and then you get to the other parts and like uh, they'll be going to see uh, the shark king and they'll be in the submarine and legitimately it's just a tank of water being filled up you can tell it's a toy <laughs> i mean it's you know things like that so it'll go from oh that looks pretty good to oh my gosh i could do that you know you could definitely do that at home right now and and it's right. it, but it, yeah. what it's what's fun about it is as you were saying, you can see how this informs so many of the what we think of as sci-fi, sci-fi heroes, um, the relationships between the different characters, uh, you know, that kind of stuff, the shorthand that they use, uh, you know, it, it, it all floats into and I mean, gosh, becomes the work of some of our you know, most love films these days, whether it's Indiana Jones or Star Wars or Star Trek or any of these things really owe so much to this history. Um, What I was also shocked by, John, was just the fact that this history, there's so much more. Uh, It was on TV as a live action series in the 50s for a year, 54 to 55, Uh, only about 39 episodes. That's a, I mean, that's normal back then. Uh, crazy yeah. thing though, connection with Star Trek, w- one of the first filmation, uh, they did a series called The New Adventures of Flash Gordon, even though it's only titled Flash Gordon, the year I was born in 70 to 80. <laughs> of course, they also produced the Star Trek uh, series, the animated series. Right. Well, it, it's really important to point out that that filmation uh, Flash Gordon series is indelibly tied to this movie, Flash Gordon. Dino De Laurentiis basically said, okay, I'll co-produce this series as long as I can maintain the uh, live-action film rights. So Lou Scheimer and Filmation got to make this, you know, for them, a big-budget cartoon version, and it's quite good. Um, I don't know why there hasn't been a definitive DVD or Blu-ray version of that, but it's actually really good. Um, And like this movie, it also is a big tip of the hat back to the original serials in terms of style and pacing and characters. So you have that kind of one foot in the 1930s and then one foot in the late 70s, early 80s. Well, and, and what's so neat, too, is the next connection to Star Trek is that they also produced an animated television movie. It was written by Samuel A. Uh, Peoples, who was a Star Trek writer. And before they began their Saturday morning serials, but the the TV movie doesn't actually appear apparently on TV until 1982, and yeah. crazy enough, this is also considered one of the best film versions of Flash Gordon. Yeah, which 
I was reading this the other day and I was doing my research and I'm like, I need to go find this because this yeah. sounds great. <laughs> it's terrific. It's really well done. So I, I would definitely encourage you to go. You know, it. and yeah. this brings to mind the idea that I'm, I'm so surprised that somebody hasn't done a 3D animated version at this point of Flash mm. Gordon, uh, you know, for television, you know, uh, Netflix and not Netflix. I think it's Amazon it brought back the Thunderbirds, uh, you know, oh, wow. and they're doing that. Cool. So I'm just surprised that somebody hasn't done this yet. Um, and yeah. uh, and then kind of the last time historically that Flash Gordon's been tried was a very short-lived sci-fi channel series that lasted a season. And from your face, John, I'm, I'm thinking it was not good. <laughs> it was horrible. It, it was absolutely terrible. Was it terrible. worse than this and, movie? And I was really... Or... Oh, oh, oh. It, it was... It sucked all the fun out of Flash Gordon. Ming was basically like a middle management oh, guy. I mean, it, it was so... It sounds like a bad it was of just, the office in space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just so dull and so pedestrian. Um, and, and I had such high hopes for it. I thought, absolutely, the time is right to make a new Flash Gordon. And they could not have botched it farther. Hmm. That's so... That, yeah. That just surprises me too, you know, and I, I think, you know, I'm trying to remember exactly. I think that was like 96 or 97 when that they tried that. And I feel like they just kind of really missed the nostalgia train where, you know, in 2012 and beyond, I feel like people really have jumped on that and kind of been reinventing things in a way that's so lovingly crafted. I feel like they just kind of miss that. So they get what you're talking about where you're just like, this, this doesn't resemble anything having to do with, you know, the flash Gordon you think of. Yeah. And, and you know, it was actually, it, it came out a little bit later than that. It came out in the early two thousands, I want to say. And it, it was um, co-produced with a Canadian company. And you just sat there watching it, trying to think, okay, what, was it about Flash Gordon that actually inspired them to make this, <laughs> you know, because it could not have been farther from the mark. And like you're saying, um, to not acknowledge that there is a nostalgia, that there is kind of a love for this throwback style, um, it, it, it absolutely missed every mark that they could have made. They could have taken this idea of, all right, fun, nostalgic, funny, you know, tongue in cheek, and actually have spiced it up a little bit, given it a little bit of a serious edge to it, a, a more adult edge to it, and uh, and they ruined it. And, and I, I could barely get through maybe three oh, episodes. That's of just it terrible. And, and you yeah. are absolutely right. Yeah. I, I missed by 10 years. It was 2007, 2008. So uh, I was okay. off there wow. by yeah. a decade. So. And, and what's so, what makes this kind of fascinating is that the only time we get a major movie production is with De Laurentiis. And, you know, there is a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff that goes on here. Um, and initially, he wants an Italian director uh, to direct the picture. Options the rights and everything, and never makes the film. And he doesn't just want an Italian director. He wants the Italian director. He wants Fellini. He wanted F Federico Fellini to make this movie, which you could argue they may have ended up with Fellini's Flash Gordon anyway by the time they were done making this. Um, but yeah, they, they couldn't get Fellini. And if I recall correctly, Fellini was interested in Flash Gordon because back in the 1940s, he had actually contributed to the comic strip. So Fellini knew his Flash Gordon. Dino De Laurentiis uh, didn't care. Dino De Laurentiis just wanted to make a big, fun movie that would make him a profit because the De, the De Laurentiis film group, they would just crank out movies. And there's a part of me that really respects that. You know, it, it doesn't have to be great but they get it done, <laughs> and um, he made a lot of crazy stuff. So it, it was kind of the right person to make that film. Now, 
other than Fellini, they had gone through, I think, six or seven other directors that they had uh, wanted to hire before they ended up with um, Mike Hodges. Well, and that's um, that's so interesting, too, because it, it reminds me of those. Um, I'm trying to think of the, the um, help me out, John, the, the Globus films, mm-hmm. you know, who. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Golden Globus Canon. Film yeah. Group. It reminds yeah. me of the Golden Globus yeah. films, you know, where they just yeah. it, it wasn't about the quality of anything, really. Yeah. It was just kind of about getting it made. And yeah, and, and it, I, I definitely think that that attitude speaks to what we'll get when we're talking about the movie. I think that really sets the stage. I mean, it, and, and if you've never seen Flash Gordon before and you go in watching it after what John and I have talked about here, that needs to be your expectation. This was just a film they wanted to get made and then they got it made and, and that was it. it. You know, it doesn't come from a love of it, which is so interesting because... George Lucas and everybody, I think, if you know Star Wars and you know the story behind Star Wars, you know that George attempted to make Flash Gordon there in the 70s. That was his idea because uh, when uh, he was talking to Ford Coppola and he challenged him to you know, do something fun uh, and he thought, well, I, you know, I love those old serials. I'd love to do Flash Gordon. and Sadly, he can't acquire the rights. So he decides that, you know, I'd, I'd rather just make it my own thing and, th- and then we get Star Wars. Well, thank God that happened. <laughs> right. But yeah. the question became in my mind, what if De Laurentiis had found somebody who respected the source material and then made the film? And, and my imagination goes wild with what we could have gotten. Because I think George would have created something that would have become the thing that we all loved. Um, maybe, you know, but the part of the problem with uh, De Laurentiis and his film style, and particularly when he was trying to make movies for an international market, but also specifically the American market, is that his grasp of English wasn't that great, and the script was really not the most important thing to him. Well, so some, I mean, you know, would, people would say that about George, but I mean, that that's that's not what yeah, I would well, say. Well, yeah, there but, you go. You know, people would <laughs> right, say that about right. him. Right, right. So, um, uh, Dino De Laurentiis had uh, somebody who would help translate scripts for him, but we're not talking about professional translators. We're talking about maybe a secretary who knew a little bit of English, and would not really get the nuance of the the lines or the scenes, but just sort of give a general overview of what was happening in the moment, just sort of the the broad strokes of the story. So you're starting from a position of having an executive producer who really doesn't know what's happening in the script. I'm, you know, coming from a Sicilian-Italian family uh, on my mother's side, I'm just imagining, and then there's a thing, and then it happens, and then, and then there's a boom. You know, it's, it's, it's a fantastical. We love it, you know. Um, right, right. That's that's pretty much, yeah, that, that's yeah, the Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and, and I, I think the other thing that, that does, and, you know, they get Mike Hodges to direct, and it seems to that the direction for the movie becomes this full-on camp. You know, it, it's it's basically going to be a colorized version of the 30s serials with 1960s Batman veneer. Yeah, I, I don't think you're off the mark there. And, um, and, and here's the thing, though, and I, I might be jumping the gun, as I very often do on... 602 club uh but but this is the thing that i would say to color the understanding of how you get from you know dino de Laurentiis, mike hodges lorenzo semple jr as the the creative forces behind this movie how you end up with the movie that you get in 1980 and you hit the nail on the head you said batman 1966 well Lorenzo Semple Jr. wrote a good deal of Batman 1966. 
So that camp style, that over-the-top comedy, all of that stuff is what worked its way into Flash Gordon. The other thing you have to understand is Dana De Laurentiis' inspirations. Look at, I, I'm just going to name two of his movies that I think are really critical here, Barbarella and Danger Diabolique, which uh, came out, I believe it came out the same year, 1968, as Barbarella. Both properties based on comic books, graphic novels, and in Italian, fumetti. And fumetti are these really, you know, bright, splashy colored, high action, low content books that inform that style. So you follow De, De Laurentiis' career and the stuff that he produced with Mario Bava. So Bava did Danger Diabolique. He did uh, Planet of the Vampires. So he did this stuff that's just big, bold, splashy, bright colors intended to speak to an audience wherever they may be because it's not so much about, you know, hanging on every word on the, the script. It's about what's the visual that do we get, how, how do we tell the story with the visual. So in some ways, Flash Gordon from 1980 is the right movie at the wrong time. If Flash Gordon had come out in 1968, after the audience is tuned into Batman, the audience is tuned into Barbarella, the audience is tuned into Danger Diabolique, then that movie makes sense. But as you described, you've got De Laurentiis struggling with the rights and then hiring one director and another and another director and trying to put all these pieces together. So does it take 10 years to put together a movie? Well, yeah, very often it takes 10 years to put together a movie. But then you get something that stylistically may not be what necessarily matches the time. Well, and, and I think that it's hurt by the fact that you have Star Wars, you have Star Trek the motion picture. Sci-fi has completely changed. And what we think of as sci-fi has completely changed. And, I, and in a sense, too, I think even the original Star Trek had, had changed the landscape of what we kind of thought of. Uh, but you also have, uh, and, and it's funny, we're going to get this movie this year, and I'll, I'm actually excited to see it, uh, the Valerane and the, I think it's the Empire of a Thousand Moons or something like that is coming out. Mm -hmm. But Valerane and Loran is a comic that, that was very popular, uh, comes from France, and uh, is about space heroes um, who are time-traveling space cops. Uh, and very splashy, very colorful, that kind of thing. Um, so, you know, it, it's an interesting thing that in the 60s, to this feel, as you said, would could completely work. And uh, Lorenzo uh, actually had a wonderful quote, and I found it over on Wikipedia there, and, and I was really glad to find it. He said, you know, they, they had this whole struggle of what they wanted to do with the script, uh, and Dino wanted it humorous. And he said, you know, at the time I thought that that was a possible way to go, but in hindsight I realized it was a terrible mistake. And that they were struggling mm. with deciding whether to be funny or realistic. And they definitely go funny. Uh, yeah. And yeah. I, so I guess, you know, here's where I'm, I'm interested is we kind of look, let's just, uh, we've, we talked about the history, the movie itself, kind of the behind the scenes. Um, I guess the, the, I don't even know what to call it. The feel, the milieu that we land in when we mm -hmm. watch this. Um, mm -hmm. For me, it's the first time. But for you, I'm kind of interested to hear what was it that kind of drew you to this film and has made it something that has kind of stuck with you and you've kind of become part of that cult following. So, you know, the last, gosh, uh, more than 10 years, the last nearly 20 years, um, movies have become dominated with comic book movies. Yes. So the, the big films that you look for every year, you know, Superman, Batman, Avengers, Iron Man, Hulk, you know, comic book movies are the movies that Hollywood makes to try to, you know, they're the tent poles that, that Hollywood makes to try to float the studio for the rest of the year. 
At the end of the 1970s, that was not the case. At the end of the 1970s, like you said, if you had science fiction, you had Star Wars, you had Star Trek the motion picture. Earlier, you had the, the very successful series of Planet of the Apes, but you're talking about a dystopian future. You had Logan's Run, another dystopian future. Uh, squeeze Superman, the movie in there from 1978. But we're coming at the end of Hollywood's sort of golden era of that sort of... Uh, uh, independent, rough around the edges. You know, this is the end of the era where Godfather is going to be a number one movie, right? And and now, you know, 40 years later, 45 years later, now comic book movies are just what we expect. Mm -hmm. Flash Gordon came out in 1980. This was not a movie. This was a European comic book on screen. So... For some audiences, that's going to work. For some audiences, it's not going to work because it's not Star Wars and it's not Star Trek and it's not Logan's Run. It's something that is, um, I would put up there with, say, like a, a horror movie like Suspiria. Suspiria is a, a, an Argento flick. And um, Suspiria really makes very little sense as a movie. <laughs> but... Uh, and, and you've got an Italian crew with some English-speaking crew and some English-speaking actors. And so, so most people on set are speaking different languages. But it's this bright pop art version of a horror movie where it's a focus on music, color, action, and feel. Not so much on script. Um, and for that reason, a lot of people don't like that movie. But it's also the reason that a lot of people love that movie. So Flash Gordon, you know, like I've been saying, it kind of comes from that same perspective where it it's not something created by a studio in the current sense and even not in the, you know, late 1970s, 1980s sense, not created by a studio in the sense of, well, we're, we're going to hit all these focus groups and we're going to make sure that it appeals to this audience and this audience and we're going to get it out there to make sure that it floats our budget for the rest of the summer, if not the rest of the year. Um, th this is essentially a foreign movie with foreign sensibilities that landed somehow on our soil, <laughs> you know? And, and for that matter, we haven't really uh, talked about Queen yet. We'll get into the music, I'm sure, a little bit later. But, you know, in 1980, Queen had had a major hit in the U.S. with uh, We Will Rock You and We Are the Champions. That was really their only hit in the U.S. by 1980. They were this weird European band with this massive following in Europe and South America and in Japan. But as big a band as Queen were and as they are now, as huge as they were, that was still sort of a band with a foreign sensibility, with a very European sensibility. Well, and I think you're absolutely right on target because it, it is funny that with the you know films starting off with their big, huge, bombastic flash. I mean, it, it legitimately <laughs> right. starts off as Queen's Technicolor Nightmare. I mean, that's yeah. kind of what this yeah. movie, I mean, it, if you want, that's that's the best explanation I can think of it in three words. You know, it is yeah. exactly that. And I liked you kind of giving that history lesson. Uh, and I think it, it's really important because there are a lot of things in this movie where the sensibilities feel very different than if it was going to be an American audience that you're doing this for, because there's some very strange things that happen in this movie, such as the emerald <laughs> rape drug drink that they give to Dale. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. obviously for modern sensibilities, completely out the window, uh, you know, but even then, I think something that m would probably raise some eyebrows for an American audience, you know, to make light of that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, again, go go back to Italian comic books. Go back to Barbarella and and Diabolique. So here's a movie that ostensibly is for the same audience that saw Star Wars, right? So the eight, nine, ten, twelve, thirteen, fourteen year olds of that period. 
but it's coming from a culture that had produced these adult-oriented comics in the 1960s. So Barbarella is a very sexy movie, and the sexual politics of it eh, don't always jibe today, <laughs> for sure. Diabolique, same thing where it's an adult-oriented story, adult-oriented characters and comic book, that then when you put it up on a screen and you say this is a comic book movie, well, to us, we go, oh, okay, well, it's a comic book movie, it's for 12-year-olds. But those stories weren't really intended for 12-year-olds necessarily. So, yeah, there are certain elements in there that don't quite land, but... I think it's one of the things that makes that movie rewatchable. You know, when I was eight watching it for the first time, I'm responding to the colors, the space heroics, the design, this sort of chiseled all-American hero, right? But then you flash forward a decade or two, watch it again, and then suddenly the little jokes that are in the script and the sexual innuendo and not so subtle <laughs> innuendo, those start to really stand out. I, I mean, what's so interesting about it is it reminds me of the pop color version of the S&M Club from The Matrix. Perfect. You know, that because that's exactly <laughs> yes, yeah. what this is. This is the the 80s pop color version of what becomes the goth in the 90s because yeah, right, everything right. from like Ming's castle to his uh like weird red trooper guards to oh, um yeah. you know the weird um little people that they have on mm -hmm. chains i don't know what that yeah. is about what one of whom is named Fellini. Uh, that is uh, Aura's And pet. one of yeah. whom is actually played by Kenny Baker, uh, who is R2-D2. Yeah, so, right, um, right, you know, right. It's so, so strange uh, to the fact that, you know, um, Baron, Prince Baron apparently lives in, you know, uh, and rules the Ewok village uh, with no Ewoks <laughs> uh, to flying weird angel men that legitimately, and I mean this legitimately, just so it's so true because I just yeah. watched the original serials look like they come straight out of those original serials. There's absolutely nothing different about yeah. the comics. Yeah. Well, it, so you've got this dose of nostalgia. So a movie that's being produced throughout the 1970s and really serious production 1979 for release in 1980. Um, but this is the nostalgia of those filmmakers who saw those serials in the 30s, saw them again in the 50s on TV. So they're writing to what they saw out of those serials. How do we modernize that? How do we make that new? But, you know, it's so funny that you said this is the um, the pop color version of, like, you know, the, the orgy from uh, The Matrix or, or however you want to fit those worlds together. I mean, to me, I look at this and I say, okay, this is late 70s, this is, you know, a Peter Max painting and Studio 54 that have sort of given birth to this unholy child of science fiction that is this version of Flash Gordon. It's sort of everything that's decadent and trashy and big about the 1970s. And again, this sort of overseas sensibility that turned this into what we got. You kind of can't plan that. You know? <laughs> no, I, I think it's because it's so cocaine-infused. Yeah, and, right. And we just, you know, right. we're not on that much coke uh, these days. Yeah. I mean, for, yeah. for the majority of people. So it right. is, <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's really hard to describe unless you just see it. I mean, it, because mm -hmm. I, what's so crazy is how audacious it is. I mean, we just don't see things like this on screen that much. The closest that I can think of that um, I've seen in the last few years was Jupiter Ascending, where it is mm. just so out there. It's, it, I mean, and, and the Walkowskis are, are the closest I can think of that have this personality that would kind of bring anything like that to the screen. And that movie was whacked. Um, Mike Schindler and I talked yeah. about uh, that 
uh, a couple years ago when it came out. Uh, I was excited because it's something new. I've never, you know, seen. Uh, we don't get a lot of original sci-fi, and then it just kind of I just didn't end up loving it. So, but that's <laughs> as close as I can get to 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 what we kind of get here in in Flash Gordon. And so, yeah, it, it's it's so fascinating to me too because looking at this film, the cast here, there's so many people that you would recognize. Uh, you know. Yeah. Max von Sydow playing Emperor Ming. I mean, the guy has, uh, you know, his, his credits go on and on. He's like Christopher Lee, where his credits just are endless. And, yeah. and the fact that he's in this movie, you know, you'd think it would add some legitimacy like Guinness to Star Wars. <laughs> it doesn't. It really... I, I'm wondering if Max von Sydow, putting on this makeup on and everything uh, throughout the... the 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 shoot is just thinking to himself it's a paycheck yeah <laughs> what have i gotten exactly. myself into i, yeah. I mean that yeah. uh, to paul uh, mm-hmm. you, uh, fiddle on the roof w- incredible yep. actor I mean, yep. it, it, uh, timothy dalton james bond yeah for gosh days. yeah well and uh, you know it, it's pre james yeah. bond but he had already done the line and winter you know, so he he's a, an actor with real bona fides and Brian Blessed, which um, has a Star Wars. I had I did not know, and I uh, please uh, fans, you can shoot me <laughs> later. I didn't know that he was Boss Nass in in Star Wars Episode One. So yeah, you know, uh, yeah, and he sounds just. I mean, it's so fantastic because he has this big booming laugh. And he's perfect for that character because that's how it was played in the 1930s serial. Yeah, yeah. And then, you well, uh, Melody Anderson, I think, as Dale is perfectly fine in the role. What you end up with is Sam J. Jones, an untested, inexperienced actor playing the lead, playing Flash Gordon. Now, there were a lot of people who were up for that role. They wanted Kurt Russell. Oh, he would have been fantastic. Um, he probably would have been, yeah, yeah, but he didn't do it. He felt like the character was too two dimensional. Probably, and, probably and it, true. No, wait, it is true. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. Yeah, and it took Sam I think Jones that's to taking it too far. Probably more like one, yeah. <laughs> one dimensional. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, Sam Jones looks the part for sure. Um, he was not an experienced actor, and you can tell. And in fact, most of his lines were dubbed. Uh, there was some falling out with the production, so he was not around for looping. So, um, yeah, so you, you end up with probably not the best situation for the lead. But I will still be the guy to defend that because Flash Gordon is sort of this one and a half, maybe if we're lucky, two-dimensional character who was written in 1934 as a comic strip. Every now and then, you get a comic strip character that you can breathe new life into. Batman, obviously, is somebody who, early on, you introduce the idea that he's got this dark side because of what happened to him, but he's, he kind of, throughout a good portion of that career, is the do-gooder. And Superman, it took a long time before we got to sort of breathe new life into Superman and make him a more complex character. Well, when we were making comic book movies in 1979, and there weren't a lot of comic book movies coming out in the 1970s, you didn't have the quote-unquote dark, gritty version of these stories. Like I said, we, your comparison point was Batman, 1966. And Superman. So I and, and, and Superman, yeah, yeah. So to me, Sam Jones is he, he's not perfect in the role. Kurt Russell probably would have been fascinating in that role, but I'm kind of okay in this situation of having the guy who just maybe isn't the best choice. <laughs> you know, what's what's fascinating is is that I'm comparing it to uh, Star Wars, obviously. With uh, like a yeah. Harrison Ford and then Mark Hamill, and both yeah. of them relatively new, not in a ton of stuff, especially Mark. And I think he's probably the best comparison. There was something yeah. about 
Mark that he and people ding Mark for not being a great actor and they're they're crazy because uh, <laughs> what Mark was able to do was bring that earnestness and make you believe yeah. it, but not be cheesy, I don't think. And especially yeah. as you get into the other films, you know, when he makes you believe that a Muppet is real, you you know that sure. you have a, a, a very good actor. And I, I think that Sam Jones probably, in, in I mean, I, he couldn't have gotten less than Mark did from George. So I just don't mm-hmm. think he had that it thing that allowed him to be able to tap in and, and create something out of basically nothing. And and I think yeah. it does kind of hurt this movie in that sense that he never becomes interesting enough for you to really kind of care about anybody in the film. And that's probably the frustration here. Uh, you know, um, I'm even thinking of, you know, later on when you get like the, the last starfighter, you know, uh, oh, yeah. interesting yeah. enough, like he plays it with enough charisma that you kind of, but yeah, yeah. Sam Jones kind of feels a little bit more like, um, you know, a blonde cardboard cutout and, instead yeah. of somebody who can give dimension to something where there isn't dimension, which is what. Mark Hamill does to, uh, I think in in he's able to imbibe that character with so much dimension. Harrison Ford does to Han Solo, which immediately makes you love him. You know, uh, great actors, even untested ones, the ones who prove their worth, are able to make you believe a character, even if it's not necessarily there on the page. And you know, Jones just doesn't have the ability to do that. I don't think. Well, and, and let's face it, the cards are kind of against yeah. you when you walk into a room and there's Max von Sydow in this satin cape <laughs> yes. and the, the black headpiece and Brian Blessed with gold wings on and his huge presence. Timothy Dalton, who who's just going to, you know, fulfill the good looking quotient in any shot. You know, I mean, you've got so much working. It's sort of like, You've walked into the circus as the least interesting performer in the circus. Oh, that is a good way to put it. Yeah, yeah. you come out as the sad clown. Yeah, I right. Mean, the, and, and, right. And, and, and nobody yeah. cares about the yeah. sad clown, really. Uh, yeah, right. So, And that's why they've got the sad <laughs> makeup on. Yeah. It is yeah. It is like the Bermuda Triangle of movies, you know, with just the, the things <laughs> that happen. To, to create what it does. But I think another thing that's really interesting is the music and Queen and the creation of the soundtrack because the 80s are a time of, of real experimentation with the soundtrack. And it's so interesting because you had such a success with Star Wars and, and the soundtrack blew up and became an overnight success. People just loved it. But then you got into this weird synth rock thing that happened through a little lot of these 80s movies that become cult classics and I'm thinking about this and uh, specifically Lady Hawk uh where it is just it's I Lady Hawk drives me crazy. I loved that movie as a kid but the soundtrack is so awful to me. Um and this doesn't quite go there because there's something about Queen and its craziness that just yeah. I mean it does. It works with this movie. It's weird. But it yeah. works. Yeah. It, it, you have to remember that in 1979, this is a pretty rare thing. You had big rock bands doing big rock movies, like The Who's Tommy from 1974. You had Pink Floyd's The Wall. You had songs that were breakout hits from movies, and you had hit soundtracks from movies. But you didn't really have anything quite like this. There are minor examples, but this is the first really major example where you've got a huge band at the top of their game. Again, America not included necessarily, but a huge band at the top of their game being hired to do not just the breakout songs from this movie. So you had Flash Gordon's theme, you have the hero that they play at the end, but you also have the incidental music and like the battle music and stuff, which, by the way, they use the uh, the battle music in the video game Vanguard. So I love playing that when I was a kid because, I, oh, they're going to awesome. use the Flash Gordon theme in here, right? 
So, um, and that was a major thing to have that combination of, again, big, crazy, over-the-top, brightly colored comic book movie with this band who are already just larger than life. You know, it, it would have been at, at the time uh, for us, like if Kiss had done uh, a movie that didn't completely suck like uh, Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park. Maybe we'll do that on 602 Club <laughs> one day. <laughs> What's funny is it's reminding me of the, the interesting connection between, and people might think I'm crazy, but the interesting connection between this and what they end up doing with Iron Man and connecting him with ACDC. Yeah. And yep. uh, in yep. the way in which ACDC and, and specifically uh, Iron Man 2, this, the main soundtrack that they, they released was just a ton of ACDC music. It works so well because that character, you know, in, in the Iron Man series has that attitude of the ACDC music. You know what I mean? He is the right. rock and roll hero that gets the girls, you know, all that kind of stuff. And as we all kind of think of with him, he's on the highway to hell, <laughs> you know, yeah, uh, right, and, and, right. and okay with it. Um, and, and this soundtrack has that same kind of feel and, and they're trying to have that same impact um, in, in a lot of ways. And, and I think for the most part, it actually, the zany, crazy rock and rollness of it fits uh, it, mm -hmm. it's unfortunate that actually the movie isn't good enough for the soundtrack. I honestly think that's, mm. it doesn't, I, I think if the movie was better, the soundtrack yeah. would be even more well-known and, and, and more recognizable to people who, you know, even haven't seen this just because the movie would be bigger in the cultural zeitgeist than it is for just the cult following. Because I really think that um, paired with ju uh, just a slightly more realistic uh, take on the film, you have a much better cohesive whole. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, you'd, fortunately, Queen were able to do things that, that fit, say, more dramatically when they did... Um, well, of course, they had the song in Iron Eagle, but Highlander is really mm -hmm. the, yeah. the one that sticks out, you know, because that that really had such a dramatic tie to that movie and a, and a dramatic feel. This, like like we're saying with everything, this movie is just so over the top and, and just beats you over the head with how yeah. over the top it is that, um, yeah, you know, it, it's a strange fit. And even on that album, which is kind of released as a quasi queen album slash soundtrack like it's a little bit weird there are little clips of dialogue from the movie thrown in there um it's not the complete soundtrack it's sort of you know best of pieces uh from the from the movie so it doesn't necessarily work as a queen album um but th there are certainly great moments mm -hmm. on that yes. album you yes know? Uh, yeah. you know um talking about highlander that we're gonna have to get norm in here with maybe yourself to yeah. talk about that film i know obviously he even does a highlander podcast because he's so oh, much yeah. into yeah. that so uh if you had any i'll plug it for him here love you norm blood of kings you'll want to check out that podcast and that uh facebook definitely page, uh if you're a huge highlander fan so you know it, it's so the thing about this movie is that i think as we talked about at the beginning, it's a confluence of events that could only have happened in the time period which it does. I just don't think that this, I, mainly because of where we are today, for the most part, this kind of thing doesn't happen with studios anymore. There's no way they, no. they would make a movie like this. And then I think, you know, that's kind of, in the same time period with Golan Globus making their films, which there's a fantastic documentary. I think it's Electric Boogaloo. Which yes, it is it's so, so good. good. Uh, I watched yeah. it because a good yeah. friend, John Mills. So if you uh, kind of want an idea of, of what Hollywood was like and how these kind of movies got made, that's a, I mean, that's key. That's a great documentary to check out. So I'd highly recommend that. Um, Side note, there is some nudity in that because of their films, so uh, I'm not endorsing that nudity. I am endorsing the the content, though, of that uh, is, is, is fantastic. 
um, just as somebody who who likes film and enjoys figuring that out. So I guess uh, I don't really think that we can come down and rate this movie. And so the main question that I, I, I because I just don't think it's fair. I mean, there there's no rating <laughs> scale uh, that that is fair for this film. I think we've talked about that. <laughs> This is a mediocre cult classic hit. But what I wanted to ask you, as somebody who has really enjoyed this movie for a long time, Mm -hmm. what keeps you coming back? What is it about this movie that has captured your imagination and has allowed you to revisit and overlook some of the things we've talked about? And what do you find when you... Are, are able to to sit down and and you know watch Flash Gordon over and over again. So I, I mean, like any movie that you do go back and watch over and over, one of the hallmarks of that experience is that your perspective and the things that you like will change over time. So in 1980, to watch this movie was one thing. It, it was a big fun comic book movie in the purest sense of the word, a comic book movie when it came out. There are no more comic book movies like that anymore. So when I watch it now and I look back, you know, 35 plus years, um, there's a sense of nostalgia there for sure. There's a little bit of a time capsule feel because as you just said, this type of movie does not get made now. And this is the perfect confluence of events. It's the perfect confluence of cultural forces that make a movie like this. You don't have this movie if you don't have crazy Italian producers who had already made uh, Barbarella. You don't have this movie if you don't have, um, well, certainly Star Wars, because then you can get a science, you know, big budget science fiction movie into the theaters, even if your sensibility is totally different. You don't have this movie if you don't have kind of the pop art phenomenon of the 60s and 70s. Like we were saying, a lot of cocaine in Studio 54. That's the kind (laughs) of thing that drives this, right? So it's that feel that is sort of encapsulated in a movie like this. What if that world cranks out a science fiction movie and, and that's sort of what you get? Now, one of the other things that I say makes this movie stand up is um, I'm going to disagree with Lorenzo Semple Jr. I think his writing on this is as good or better than the stuff that he did in Batman and the jokes absolutely work when they work. Not everything lands perfectly, but this is one of the most quotable movies. I mean, to see Hans Zarkov and Prince Baron chained up in a dungeon and the cut is simply show them, you wait a beat, And Baron turns to Zarkov blindfolded and says, tell me more about this man, Houdini. And that's the cut. And it's absolutely great. It's the kind of thing you would have had in Batman. There's so many golden lines in this movie that I absolutely love it for that. Um, I think the production design is remarkable. 99% of this movie takes place off of Earth. So you have that little bit of the opening uh, after the the cold open, you have that little bit of the opening with uh, Flash and Dale meeting at the Dark Harbor Airport, hopping in the airplane. By the time they get to Han Zarkov's spaceship, which doesn't look like anything of this Earth anyway, you're gone. You're you're in Mongo City, and you're on every other sort of satellite planet of Mongo. And the design of that is. Fantastic. Like I said, you've got a a foot in the 1930s with this just hyperbolic Art Deco design, these rich, amazing colors. But everybody has has their own sort of uh, uh, style and character derived through that design sense. So um, I think that's sort of a bold move that a lot of movies don't make these days. Yeah, you know, I I could go on and on. Um, Clearly, this is a flawed movie. Clearly, this is a movie that, you know, never fires perfectly at every moment. Um, 
the acting is uneven. You've got a lot of (laughs) masters at the top of their craft and then others who simply aren't that. But somehow it all comes together and it all comes together in a way that you can't contrive. So I I think I've talked before on 602 Club and I know that I've talked before on, uh, on some other shows how the only movies that really drive me nuts are the ones where I feel like in this sort of postmodern, ironic way, they're sort of winking at the audience and saying, look how terrible this is. We're in on the joke too. Flash Gordon isn't a movie that's winking at the audience and saying, look how terrible this is. It's a movie that's winking at the audience and saying, can you believe how insane we are? We got away with doing this insane stuff on camera. So it's a very different feel. You know, they had uh, somewhere around $30 million, I think, to make this movie. And they just threw it all at the screen. And you can tell because there is not one frame of film that doesn't have some insane set piece in it or some insane costume design in it. So God bless them for doing that. I think the worst thing that you can do is you can take $30 million and say, eh, this junk will air at, you know, one o'clock in the morning on Sci-Fi Channel. So we'll put in some bad CGI monsters and it doesn't care how bad they look. To me, that's the worst sin you can commit yeah, as a like filmmaker. Yeah, like Sharknado. 5,000. Yeah, exactly. You know, like, yeah, exactly. which I don't get yeah, any of those. Yeah. But uh, no, I think you're you're absolutely right. They, they do put their money into this and you can see it in the elaborate designs of the sets and... What's crazy, too, is you can see the impact of, like, uh, the sets from, like, uh, 60s Star Trek uh, coming in Mm -hmm. uh, in the design work here. I think especially of the Cloud City that you go to uh, with the Eagle, um, the Hawk people, and, and, um, you know, it definitely feels like a 60s Star Trek set, um, but just with some more money involved. Uh, And all of that, I think it's, it's, it's really something to behold and and i think um again the closest i can think of to a film that is somewhat like this is like jupiter ascending and Mm -hmm. uh yeah it's 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 like you said this kind of stuff um it really it does not get made uh and and what's most interesting and i'm i'm really excited is luke uh, besson the the French director, uh, probably butchering his name. I totally apologize. Uh, is <laughs> is making Valerian in the city of a thousand planets. That that's what it's called. And if you watch that trailer, the outlandish craziness of everything that they're doing doing reminds me of this. And the last time that I felt like a movie was kind of like that was The Fifth Element, and that was Luke's movie as well. And oh so, yeah, right, um, right. You know, again, I I think this kind of thing just doesn't get made, but it does have influences you can see later on down the road in in a movie like The Fifth Element or something like that. I I think it's it's incorrect to come away from Flash Gordon to see it as a failed movie or as simply a bad movie. There are many other bad movies that are bad because they're boring or because you can tell the filmmakers didn't try. You know, all these other things that are sort of the sins of filmmaking. Flash Gordon is a highly stylized movie. And it's a movie that comes from influences that we don't really see in mainstream American cinema. We just don't. So I love that you're you're sort of creating the the context for what other movies now and going forward are related to this. I like looking at the history of what led to this movie. So obviously the original series, but uh, 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 serials of Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers. But then Batman is just a huge influence on this because of the screenwriter. And then you have to look at the history of what Dino De Laurentiis was cranking out. And if you're doing that, look at what Mario Bava put out. Look at what Dario Argento put out. Look at these other Italian filmmakers, their style, their cultural influences. That's what leads up to Flash Gordon. So it it takes a little bit of 
you know, and, and granted, I'm saying all this now. This is not what I was thinking when I was eight years <laughs> <Right>. old. <laughs> you know, but but I, I love that I've had an uh, an education in cinema since then, and I can look at that movie now and say, "Wow, these are all the the lines that had to converge to make this and make it the weird standalone movie that it was." And as we're making the case for here, you're probably not going to see it again. Well, and I think that's a, a really interesting aspect to just take it into the film, too, is that um, the heavy influence of Italian cinema, that is a completely different world from our Americanized Western thought of, I mean, and, and Italian is Western, but they have such a different mm -hmm. sensibility yeah. with their film, especially in that 60s, 70s time period than we did. And therefore, yep. it created a different milieu for Flash Gordon to come out of. And as we keep saying, the closest that, that came in the States was Batman, 66. Yeah. Uh, and and yeah. that's really what we, you know, um, Batman has a huge influence on what we get. And it makes for a very fun, very interesting experience. And like you said, it's not a good movie. Right, but <laughs> right. I think what makes it interesting is that it's a film was a product of a time that won't happen again. Yeah, and because the what won in this kind of thought process of what sci-fi was going to be was the Star Wars, was the Star Trek. Th that's what ended up winning out, and and the closest that we. I guess get these days is, um, you know, uh, some of the more goofy, lighthearted superhero films, honestly, you know, mm -hmm. uh, the mm -hmm. ones that maybe don't take themselves as seriously. Yeah. And, and it's a really fine line. Like I said, you know, there, there's one thing to set out to make a movie that is lighthearted and has a sense of humor about itself and is sort of slipping in those jokes for the audience. But it's another thing to make a movie that is so cynical about its own ability to be funny and and I really hate that you know it, it's terrible to to see movies like and that, that actually um, that um, when we're talking about the kind of the superhero influence it has it that kind of is why I don't I didn't really enjoy the Deadpool film I, I just mm, it was mm -hmm. so self-referential about how funny it was and how outlandish it was and everything I just I don't know. It just didn't, it didn't end yeah. up working for me. So no, I, I, it's fascinating to get a, a chance to dive into something like this because there's so much history to it, but there's so much in the ways now that when we look back that things have connected and it's, it's so cool. Uh, the way that history works, even in something yeah. as, as silly as pop culture, which, you know, yeah. in the end is important to us because it does inform a lot of our daily lives even if we don't want to admit it. And I think that's what makes it so fun to sit down and talk about something like this or when we talk about Bond together or anything else that we talk about here in the 602 Club. You know, and to me, this has been a blast because there's something that our pop culture says about us. And what's cool is when you look back at, at, at what we're talking about Flash Gordon, this comes from a culture that we're just not necessarily familiar with, with those Italian directors, 60s, 70s sensibilities. That's an interesting aspect to get to look back and, and, and see what that culture was like and what they thought was fun and crazy. And uh, it's awesome. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> thank you so much to our associate producers here through Patreon, Davis Grayson, Ken Tripp, Norman Lau. Guys, Norman. Yeah, love you guys uh, so much for supporting the show and the network. Trek FM has so many different shows and is such a big network. There just really isn't a way for us who produce all the shows and everything to just do it by ourselves. And so the way that you can help out the network is to go to patreon.com slash Trek FM and just see how you can support the network every little bit a month. Uh, just a little bit helps make sure that each and every show here comes to you each and every week. We have some great perks that come through, you know, different levels of contribution, things like that. We love giving back to you guys. So go to patreon.com slash trek FM and see how you can become part of the team. 
John, as always, when we're talking Bond or, or something like this, absolute blast to have you here. Let everybody know, of course, where they can find you. And especially, you know, if they want to dive in, uh, you know, some of the influences that we talked about or pick your brain about if they want to go in a little bit deeper and maybe dig into some of those Italian directors and some of their films they should watch. Uh, where can they find you for that? And then, of course, uh, tell them about Mission Alert. All right. Yeah. Well, if you want to talk uh, about Flash Gordon, you want to talk about Bond, you want to talk about other stuff, uh, hit me up on Twitter at DVD Geeks. Um, love to uh, love to hear about your memories of Flash Gordon. And um, if you don't want to talk about that, if you want to talk about Star Trek specifically, give us a shout at Mission Log. So missionlogpodcast.com. And on Twitter and Facebook, we are Mission Log Pod. So love to hear from you there, too. Awesome. Well, you can find me on Twitter, MattRushing02. If you want to talk about anything, uh, Instagram, and Rushing. I'm also here on the network with Chris Jones doing The Orb. We're hoping to be back soon, so keep your fingers crossed. Keep those prayers coming for Chris. Well, we would love to be back talking about Deep Space Nine as soon as we can. I'm over on the nerdparty.com talking about Star Wars with my good friend John Mills. We just... Really, we pick a topic each week and just discuss it. Uh, it could be fun or silly or serious, or it just kind of depends on where we are that week and what we want to talk about. It's a blast. Um, it's pretty much as if you just sat across the table with a good friend talking about Star Wars. That's what we do with each other. So that's Aggressive Negotiations. Also, you can find Owl Post, a Harry Potter podcast, talking with Drea Kaufman each week. We are going through each and every chapter of the Harry Potter series throughout the books there so check that out it's it is so much fun to be able to dig into the books you know we all know the movies but it's fun to be back with the source material uh and what rolling gave us in the books so i hope you will join us on all of those on itunes and then of course you can find star wars at 602 club collection as well on itunes well thank you so much for joining us and y'all come back now you hear <laughs>